I don't know if you guys consider me old. I don't think I don't feel old, but what generation are you guys called? Gen Z. What? Gen Z. Z? Okay, I think I'm, I'm officially Generation X. And I can tell you, like, the baby boomers, a lot of them were able to be culturally Jewish, and that was, like, enough for them. Um, for them, not for their kids. They weren't able to sustain it. They weren't able to transmit it. But, like, for a lot of the baby boomers, their Jewish identity had to do with cultural stuff. And uh, that seemed to be enough to keep them feeling Jewish. What's interesting is that in the, just the past few decades, we see that unraveling, and people your age are not necessarily so enthralled by that which kept the baby boomers feeling Jewish. In other words, like, I, I'll tell you something I've seen in my own lifetime. When I was your age, which I know sounds terribly like, old to say when I was your age, but you guys are like 20 or so? Okay. So 30 years ago, when I was your age, um, if you wanted to stop a Jew from getting cremated, you would just say, well, the Nazis burned Jewish bodies and you're going to get cremated, and no one would do it. That was just, that would, it would push a button. That was it. Or a tattoo. You, the Nazis tattooed Jews in the concentration camps, and you're going to do that to yourself, and that was it. That would be enough. Or, or you could say... I'll give you an example that doesn't invoke the Holocaust. You could say, well, what would your grandmother say? Right? And now, like, what would your grandmother say? I, I don't know. A lot of times the grandmother herself is not particularly observant or, or caring that much about Jewish observance. Right? So I've seen, and I'm not that old, I've seen in my life a lot of the stuff that we used to conveniently rely upon to sort of invoke Jewish identity, it doesn't work on the people of this generation. Like there was a button with the baby boomers that even if they came from a very assimilated household, they didn't, you know, like the classic American experience, Hebrew school after school, two days a week, and a you know, bar mitzvah factory, Jewish education. But there were certain buttons you could push that like all of a sudden that would get them feeling very Jewish. Um, and often, I'll tell you, the, the most common instance where that emergency button would be pushed was to prevent intermarriage. And you could do that with the baby boomers. I'm talking about in my, in my lifetime, you could say to people, you know, think about your grandparents. Think about the golden chain. Think about your connection. Think about the Jewish people. And you're going to stop all that. And it would, it would actually evoke a response. It would actually... It was a very powerful, I don't want to call it weapon, but it was. It, was a, it, it could shut down any debate and effectively get people to fall in line. And I don't know, you tell me, because I'm saying something about your generation, you tell me if I'm correct. Most of the things that used to just immediately inspire people 20, 30, 40 years ago, today it's like, why, why are you telling me this? Like, and, why, and why do you think I care? Why do you think this is particularly important to me? Is that, is that an accurate assessment of today? Or, yeah. or is it not as bad as I thought? Or it is as bad as I thought? I don't have to use the word bad or good. Is that what it is? Okay, all right. So I want to tell you something. 
I'm actually happy about this. First of all, what choice do I have? <laughs> like, I'm going to go cry. But also, Hashem knows what he's doing. Hashem runs the world. And Hashem has an end game here. There's, there's a point to all of this. And we know, as Jews, that history culminates in world peace, in perfection, what we call the era of Mashiach. So everything in history, in some way, even if it doesn't appear to be linear growth, somehow it's getting us closer to that, to that destiny. So everything in some way has to be progress. So well, how is this a good thing that we don't have those buttons to push that will just trigger even the most assimilated Jew to suddenly feel connected to the Jewish people and we don't, we don't have those convenient triggers anymore. So I'll, I'll tell you what I think. We are being forced to go much deeper. Much deeper. I have a friend who was, uh, I won't say which campus it was, but I'll tell you it was in the Pacific Northwest. And he had a Chabad house there. And they used to have Friday night matzo ball soup. They stopped doing it. Now, like I said, a lot of people here from England, from Australia, and like I said, your assimilation is 10, 20 years in a good way behind. So you probably know what matzo ball soup is. It, I don't know, though, will it shock you that at this particular campus in the Pacific Northwest, they discontinued Friday night matzo ball soup because none of the students knew what it was. They didn't know what it was. So it, it used to be there was a model of, of Kiruv where if you serve the matzo ball soup, the Jew smells the matzo ball soup, oh, like Bubby used to make, and that pushed a button. And then we got to a point where the matzo ball soup is not triggering that reaction. It doesn't do anything. And for people of a certain demographic, we'll call it, that's very Jewish for them. That feels very Jewish. And you tell those types of jokes, and you put in a couple of Yiddish words, and a, and a oive, and a little of this, and you sprinkle it. It's, they feel very Jewish from that. But if I were to go on to your campus, and I would start pulling out Henny Youngman jokes, and oive, and matzo ball, what kind of response is that going to get? I mean, at best, apathy. Huh? So... At, at, that's what I said. At best, apathy. Perhaps, even more likely, it will incur the wrath. Not, and, and I'm not talking about anti-Semites. I'm talking of Jews. The Jews will be the first people to be so turned off by that. So we don't have these convenient references. I just want you to understand that the Kirov game, 50 years ago, and it's crazy to think that. It's been going on that long, but really, I mean, it's, it's crazy to think, but 50 years ago was 1973, okay? And there were already plenty of Balei Tshuva yeshivas, yeshivas just for people who are 
returning to Judaism and in, in, in the 70s. I mean, it was like, there's already a movement at that point. And how are most of those people brought in? I promise you, part of their teshuva story did have to do with some type of, what would your grandparents say? Remember the smell of the brisket, the matzo ball soup. There was some level of your family, you've come home, you know, that warmth of that identity, finding your tribe, which is so wonderful. And it's, and it's, it's a real thing. But in 2023, how many Jews have enough of an association to even a recollection of an observant Jewish ancestor that these things would even have a meaning to them. So, so like I said, I, I'm not going to be sad about it. Because first of all, what's the point? But second of all, like I told you, Hashem knows what he's doing. So what are we left with? What are we left with in 2023? Almost, to, almost 2024. What are we left with? when we want to speak to a Jew and arouse in them that deepest feeling of Jewishness. So, Baruch Hashem, in today's day and age, we have finally been forced to go to the deepest, most spiritual truth, that Jewish identity is a metaphysical condition. We cannot speak of Jewish identity without speaking of spiritual truth. Because ultimately, what makes a Jew Jewish is not ethnicity or culture or the language you speak at home, or the passport that you hold. It's not even your level of Jewish observance, because unfortunately there are plenty of Jews who Torah defines as Jews, and they do not observe Judaism. So, it's none of those things. What is it? It is an inherently spiritual definition. In other words, why are you Jewish? Because your soul is Jewish. There are other souls, Jewish souls, are Jewish. Now what makes a, what is a, what's a Jewish soul? What's a soul? Well, let's start like this. A soul is not a body. A soul is not a body, but a soul needs a body. What's a body? A body is a container for a soul. A body is a vehicle for a soul. A soul is a mission, is a purpose, is a function. It's very uh, abstract, right? Purpose, mission, those are not physical objects. There's what a thing is, what it is, and then there's its function, how it's used. So there's the what and there's the how. You can call it, you can call it the, the, the physical and the spiritual. So the soul is not what, it's not the thing, it's not a physical object. It's the how, meaning it's the purpose of your existence. It's how you use your existence in the way that it was intended to be used. So your soul basically means your purpose. But your purpose 
can only be accomplished in a body. So your purpose comes down from this abstract spiritual realm, which you can call heaven, and experiences embodiment. It comes into a physical container or vehicle called a body, so it can accomplish its purpose. And what is your soul, which is a spiritual being? What is its purpose that can only be accomplished through embodiment and can only be accomplished in the physical world, on the physical plane? Soul came from heaven down to the physical plane. Why? To make the physical world holier than heaven. Think about that. One of the, I'm sure you heard of Maimonides. Yeah, everyone heard of Maimonides? Okay. The hospital. There's a hospital, Maimonides. Okay. All right. So, you've heard of the uh, 13 principles of faith? Okay. Okay, so they're being polite when they're nodding? Yeah, yeah, yeah. English okay. people. The English <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Maimonides is one of the great Jewish thinkers, and he codified something called the 13 principles of faith, which are basic beliefs that are central to Judaism. Like the belief in the, the oneness of God, for instance, or the belief in the divine origin of the Torah. Okay, one of the beliefs, core principle beliefs that the Rambam mentioned, in Hebrew we call them the Rambam, but Maimonides in English, um, is the resurrection. That after Mashiach, which is another one of the principles of faith, after the world is perfected, when there's world peace, that's a basic Jewish belief that this world is perfectible, there will be a resurrection. Which means that souls that were in bodies, and that body expired, and those souls went to heaven, those souls will come back from heaven into embodiment again. And that's a primary Jewish belief. So the question is like this. Think about a soul that lived its embodiment hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago. You know what a yortzite is? In Yiddish it's called a yortzite. It means the anniversary of the passing of a person. So, every year, on the anniversary of the passing of a person, the neshama, the soul, has an aliyah. An aliyah means an ascent, an elevation. It goes to a higher level in heaven. And that's why the surviving family members say Kaddish, the famous Yisgadu Yisgadash. That prayer is actually made to facilitate the elevation of the soul in heaven. So think about souls that had their embodiment hundreds of years ago or even thousands of years ago. Think about like Moses, who lived over 3,000 years ago. And think about what he accomplished in this world and that when he passed away at 120 years old and he went to heaven, he already went to an extremely high level. And then every single year on the anniversary of his passing, he would have another elevation, go to an even higher level. And then at some point, very, very soon we hope, the world will become perfected. First thing will be world peace. But then there will be resurrection. And all the souls in heaven are going to come back into embodiment, including Moses. How Every year for over 3,000 years, he's been having an elevation to higher and higher levels of paradise. You know, you know what paradise is? 
It's paradise. Now, what is paradise for a soul? It's not a hot tub, a jacuzzi sipping a pina colada. For a soul, paradise is experiencing godly truth, which for a soul is extremely pleasurable. So we're talking about souls who are experiencing profound spiritual pleasure in the highest heights, and then all of a sudden one day they're going to get a tap on the shoulder and say, hey buddy, you turn, turn it around, 180, go back down. How does that seem, how does that seem fair? Why will that happen? Why does that make sense? So we're forced to say, you understand the question. So we're forced to say that apparently when this world becomes perfected, that it'll be holier than heaven. And when that happens, a soul that's been going to higher and higher levels, at that point, the only way to go higher will not be to go to another level of heaven, but to come to the physical world, because the physical world will be the ultimate level of spirituality. It's a crazy concept. So you are your mission, your purpose, which we call an ashama or a soul. That mission or purpose could only be accomplished here in the physical world, in your physical container called your body. What is your physical mission? To perfect the physical world and to make this world holier than heaven. What are the mechanisms by which you accomplish that? The 613 commandments. The 613 commandments are behaviors. They're not meditations, they're not ideas, they're not feelings. Now, to be sure, there's a concept called kavana, which means intent. And when you meditate and you study and you learn about the deeper meaning of a mitzvah, then you'll have greater kavana and you'll have greater feeling with which to infuse your behavior. But the bottom line is the behavior. The bottom line is behavior. The purpose that you came to this world for was action. To perform mitzvahs. Not for the pleasure of God consciousness that the souls have in heaven, but for the power of refining this physical plane that you only have while you're in a physical body. I had a friend, dear friend, he's since passed, who was a Buddhist priest. And I used to study Torah with him every week. Now I'm going to give you one guess. One guess. Get it right. Why did I study Torah every week with this Buddhist priest? Go for it. Of course he was Jewish. That is correct. You got it. He was a nice Jewish boy who went to Hebrew school in Metairie, Louisiana. And uh, he was a genius. He had a PhD in philosophy from Princeton. And being a man of integrity, after studying all the philosophies and the ideologies and the religions of the world, he said, I have to pick one of them to live according to. Well, the first ideology that he crossed off the list, what do you think it was? 
Judaism. Judaism. Because he had experienced that already. So the Bar Mitzvah Factory program, that, like so many American Jews, he, that's, that was his exposure to Judaism. You know, Hebrew school twice a week after school. And what he was exposed to was just not very deep, was not very stimulating, and it was certainly not spiritual. Because the spirituality had been sort of like extracted from that version of Judaism that he was being taught. Unfortunately, that was the, the belief then that the, uh, <laughs> the spirituality will, t will turn people away. It's, it's not palatable. So he was given this very dry pediatric version of, of Judaism. So when he decided to look for a religion or a, a way of life to actually adhere to, first one that he eliminated was Judaism. So then eventually he became uh, a Buddhist, and of course, being a Jew, he can't just be a regular Buddhist, right? Yes, there's an expression. The Jews are like everybody else, only more so. <laughs> right? So he can't just be a regular Buddhist. He has to be the Buddhist priest. So that's what he did. And when I met him, um, he was already... He wasn't well. He, was, he had an illness, which eventually he succumbed to. But we used to learn Torah together once a week. And I remember one time we were studying together. And I'll tell you what a genius he was. That he was a, a type of a person. And I, I, I would say I've only met a few people like this. And maybe even I would put him in a category unto himself. That when we would learn even the most mystical, abstract concepts, not only would he immediately be able to pick up the concept and converse fluently about the concept, he would be able to make jokes about the concept that were actually funny. Like that to me is a level of, of genius. So we were studying, and I remember what we were studying, we were start, studying Shara Yichud Ve'amuna, which is the second volume of Tanya, which uh, is uh, one of the main Hasidic texts. And the second volume is about cosmology. It's about the origin of the universe and the nature of created existence. And it's, it's deep stuff. So we're studying together. And I don't remember what I read from the text. I used to read the Hebrew and translate in English. I don't, interestingly, by the way, he was a translator himself. He was the world's foremost translator of Tibetan scripture. At any rate, so we're studying. And I don't remember what I read, but all of a sudden, he says, like, he starts going, that's radical. And he said it like that, like very like emotionally. And like I told you, he wasn't well when we were studying together. So he was normally very subdued. But like all of a sudden, he became rather animated. And he says, that's radical. I'm thinking, okay, what, you know, what's radical? I, don't, I mean, this is deep stuff. A lot of this, these concepts are deep concepts. And then he says it again. He says, that's radical. I'm like, okay, yeah, yeah. But then he says it again. That, that's radical. Nobody says that. Nobody says that. Nobody says that. Only you guys say that. That's totally radical. So now he's got my interest because I'm thinking to myself, we just read something. He's telling me it's radical. Nobody says it. Only you guys, which I don't know if he means the Jews or the Chassidim or whatever, I don't know. But he's saying that I just said something that nobody else says, and I didn't even know that I had just said it. 
So when that ha you know what an expert blind spot is? When you become oblivious to something that's so ubiquitous in your area of familiarity that you don't even notice it. So I, I sort of perked up my ears. I'm like, okay, what's this radical thing? Because I, I didn't know I said anything that was particularly like a bombshell. So I said, what, what, what's radical? But he kept saying, that's radical, that's radical. Nobody says it, nobody says it. I had to wait like a good couple minutes for him to calm down. So finally he calms down. And remember, I told you that his path was that he explored every ideology, every philosophy, every religion. So when he says, nobody says this but you, he's not just uh, some, some, some uh, dilettante who uh, studied a couple of uh, books on philosophy. He knows what he's talking about when he says that there's a, there's a belief that's unique or, or idiosyncratic or, 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 or unusual. I mean, he, he, has, he knows what he's saying. So I'm really, really eager to hear what he's going to tell me is this radical concept that's apparently uniquely Jewish. So he says, nobody says it. That's radical. It's radical. It finally calms down. He says, I remember it so clearly. He says, some people believe the phenomenological universe does not exist. It's an illusion. The phenomenological universe means the physical world. This, this plane of existence that our five senses take in the stimuli from and they process that as reality. You know, what, what the empiricists believe is the end-all and be-all. But the phenome phenomenological universe. So he says, some believe the phenomenological universe does not exist. It's an illusion. Others believe that it does exist, but it is a stepping stone to a higher reality, a spiritual plane, which is the ultimate reality. But nobody says that the physical world is the ultimate purpose of it all. Nobody says that, but you guys, that is radical. So that was a big moment for me. Look, every good religious person wants to do good deeds so they die and go to heaven. There's nothing uniquely Jewish about that. The afterlife is not a uniquely Jewish concept. The idea of the perfectibility of the physical world, that the messianic era is not an afterlife, but it is this physical plane in its perfected state, that's unusual. My friend said, uniquely Jewish. In other words, you can find atheists or humanists who will tell you that the only purpose of life is here in this world because they don't believe that there's anything but this world. And to the other, on the other extreme, you can find religious people who will tell you that the ultimate purpose of being in this physical world is what's going to happen to you for eternity in the spiritual world. But go find a belief that says there is an afterlife. Moses' Moses's soul has been elevating there for thousands of years and is on the highest planes of that afterlife. And yet there's going to come a moment very, very, very soon 
where Moses' soul and all of the lofty souls from the loftiest levels of heaven are going to come back down here because the physical plane is going to be the ultimate reality. So how do you even explain that concept, that the physical plane is the ultimate reality? I'll try to encapsulate it like this. The primary prayer of the Jewish religion is the Shema. We all, we all know the Shema? I'll say the Shema. Shema Yisroel Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Very good. Here, O Israel, the Lord is God. The Lord is one. What does one mean? This one, this word echad, one, is not monotheism. It's not the belief in one God. It is the belief in oneness. That there is only one reality. Ultimately, everything is an expression of the one. There's nothing but God. There's nothing but Him. Oh, you see a world? Yes, okay, but that does not exist separate from God or ontologically independent from God. It is an expression of God. Christopher Hitchens said something that really got me thinking. He said, you guys know Christopher Hitchens, right? Okay. He was an ardent, militant atheist. And... Uh, he said a lot of interesting things. One thing he said is, he said, listen, it's very simple. The future of humanity is atheism. And he says, I'll, I'll prove it to you. I'm paraphrasing. He says, man used to believe in many gods. Then he came to believe in one god. Right? So first, most primitive cultures were polytheistic. And then monotheism came along. And ultimately, they'll just narrow it down one more God, and humanity will be atheistic. And I love the simplicity of that argument. I, I have a special affinity for any argument that will take a complex idea and, and recognize some consistent underlying pattern. And so the argument, or the formulation of the argument, was very compelling to me. I, I enjoyed it. Now, obviously, I didn't agree with the conclusion, but I was forced to figure out why, I'm re why I would reject the conclusion. You follow what I'm saying? So I thought about it, and I realized, while his argument was very elegant, he omitted, and I don't think it was malicious or willful on his part, he omitted, uh, he omitted a very important part of the formulation, which causes the entire trajectory to be off, and then the conclusion is off. It's not accurate to say that man used to believe in many gods, period, full stop. That's not a complete sentence. It's more accurate to say man looked at a world full of many things, many forces of nature, the, the sun, the rain, whatever it is. And as I'm sure Hitchens and other atheists would agree with me, 
all of the mythologies that primitive people came up with were to explain these very diff various different phenomena. And therefore, they came up with, for each phenomenon of nature, they came up with another god. So if, if, there's a, if there's the sun, then there's the god of the sun. If there's the rain, there's the god of the rain, so on and so forth. So it's not accurate to say man used to believe in many gods. You have to say the whole statement. Man used to believe in many different things that were ruled by many different gods. Each thing had its god. So far, so good? Then what happened when monotheism became popular is that man came to believe that all these many different things were ruled by one God. So it's not a different God for the sun than there is for the rain. It's one God who manages the sun and the rain. Follow me? Next, what happened, and interestingly, this has occurred in the secular world, maybe even more than it has occurred or become popular in the religious world, man came to realize that there are not many things. The world is not a world of many things. You ever heard of the unified field theory or the unifying theory of everything? It's what Einstein was looking for. It wasn't enough to him that matter and energy are one. Ultimately, he wanted to come up with the one equation that would just account for everything. So instead of saying that, you know, they basically got it down to four forces that you have, uh, uh, what is it, uh, uh, gravity, electromagnetism, uh, the weak nuclear force, the strong nuclear force. They got it down to four, they want to get it down to one. So the trend, the trajectory is further simplicity, further oneness. So man came to believe that there's a world that's not full of many things, but it's a world of one thing. And if you introduce the religious element, ruled by one God. But that's not the ultimate destiny of the evolution of human belief. The ultimate form of belief is to further simplify that ultimately humanity will believe in one thing. In one thing. Not one God who rules over many things. Not even one God who rules over a world which is really one thing. But belief in one thing. That reality is oneness. So there's not creator-creation, spiritual-physical, infinite-finite. Those dichotomies don't exist. There's oneness. And specifically, where do you see oneness? Not in a monolith. That's not oneness. Oneness is the paradox of diversity where you see multiplicity, and yet underlying all of the seemingly complicated diversity is really one essence. It's like you take a cell from your brain or a cell from your toenail, it's the same genetic code. It's the same DNA. There's a DNA of reality, of the universe, and it's the absolute existence. And that's what we refer to and we're meant to think of when, as Jews, we say the Lord is one, not one God, monotheism, but one total oneness. So tell me this. Where in all of the worlds, plural, worlds, there are spiritual planes, and then there's the physical plane. Where are, in, in all of the worlds, where can this oneness finally be revealed? Not in the spiritual planes. Because in the spiritual planes, there's only the spiritual. The paradox is that the ultimate manifestation 
of godliness, of the oneness, will be in the physical world, in time-space, where finitude will not be a contradiction with infinity. Infinity, which can only exist within the infinite, is not infinite. <laughs> it's half of infinity, which isn't infinite at all. True infinity exists within the finite. So that's why your soul, which is a spiritual entity, came down to this limited physical container called the body to do physical actions called mitzvahs, which introduce divine will, God's will, into the physical world, which ultimately cultivates in a process of refinement where the physical universe becomes more refined, more transparent to the Creator than any of the spiritual planes. In other words, you will see godliness more in the physical world than on any level of heaven. Now, I know that's very deep stuff. But ultimately, let me go back to where I started from. If I meet a Jew today, I'm not going to talk matzo ball soup. I'm not going to talk about culturalism and nationalism and all the other things that used to work on the baby boomers. Today, if I have an opportunity to speak to a Jew, you know what I'm going you know to talk about? If I have five seconds, I'm going to offer you a mitzvah. I'm going to offer you a mitzvah. Because the mitzvah is the ultimate purpose of it all. The physical action. If you give me more than five seconds, I'll start to tell you a condensed version of what I just spent an hour telling you. You want to hear the 10 second version? Or it will outrage you because you'll be like, you could have done that in 10 seconds. <laughs> the 10 second version would be, you are a Jew. You were a Jew before the physical world was created. You came to this physical world to bring the infinite into the finite by doing one of these 613 physical actions. And then I would offer them a mitzvah. A practical act that can be done with your physical body in time space at this place, at this time. And the culminating effect of all of that is like what my friend said is radical. That this physical world becomes the ultimate in all of creation. And like our prophets told us thousands of years ago, that when Mashiach comes, they say a very interesting thing. All flesh will see that the mouth of the Lord has spoken. What does it mean the mouth of the Lord has spoken? Basically, it's the Kabbalistic concept that God speaks reality into being. That the physical universe is not as tangible, not as solid as you take it for granted as being. It's really all in flux. It's divine speech. It's Hashem's own self-expression, which he is renewing at every single moment. But what does it mean that all flesh will see this? All flesh will see. Know what it'll mean? When the physical world becomes so refined, it will no longer require a religious education 
to understand the potency of the mitzvahs. Torah law will be as evident as natural law. By natural law, you know what I mean? I mean, like, if you step off a cliff, you, you'll, you'll fall, whether you believe in gravity or not. Okay. You touch a hot flame, it'll burn you, whether you believe it will or not. Unfortunately, today, we can violate God's law, and we will not necessarily see any cause and effect, which is all part of free choice. And that's really sort of dysfunctional, that we live in a world where a great deal of reality is concealed from us. But that's what we're working on refining. So when the world is fully refined, what will happen is God's will, meaning the mitzvahs, the commandments which he has given us, will be as evident the flesh will see it. It will be empirically evident that this is God's world, that God and his world are of one essence, that the soul and the body coexist. All of the, the discord will, will, be, will be harmonized and the underlying oneness of it all will just become it won't, it won't be a philosophical abstraction any longer. It'll be empirically evident. You won't have to explain it conceptually. We will see it with our own fleshly eyes. And that's why, you know, what I said earlier about Hitchens' formulation about the evolution of belief, you know, I think it's a very important thing to realize that the trend of, of science is to look for greater oneness deeper and deeper oneness, and that I believe with full confidence that if human beings continue to look at this world, thoroughly to look at this world, they will find oneness. So we don't have to be afraid that, oh no, the scientists will eventually discover something that will finally deliver the death blow to primitive belief and then religion will be dead. No, go ahead, keep exploring. Because if they keep on looking, they'll eventually find oneness. And then it'll be empirically evident what we've been saying for millennia. Okay, so bottom line, oneness. Infinite, finite, spiritual, material. Do a mitzvah. Do a godly act contained in a physical time and place. Refine the world and bring about the state where every single human being, whether they're Jewish or not Jewish, will live in a world where oneness is evident and revealed, and this will bring prosperity and healing and, and, and goodwill and peace to every single human being in the world. Okay, but it's through your mitzvah. Or we could just talk about matzah balls. Should I... Tell me the truth, by the way. That, that's it. That's all I have to tell you. My presumption was that for a 2023 crowd, that that would be much more compelling than the cultural references. And yeah? yeah? So I was a little bit deep. I know that. And maybe I put some of you to sleep, which on a Sunday morning is not bad to sleep in. So <laughs> can't be too mad at me. But can, can I ask, uh, English people feel free to 
to argue with me. Am I right? I'll ask you two questions. One, am I right to say that those cultural triggers that worked on the baby boomers aren't really so intact today? Is that true? Okay. Am I right to believe that the mystical, metaphysical arguments are probably all we have? So you're okay with this? Okay, so can you do me a favor? Really, I'm asking you a favor. Take my very long-winded, abstruse way of presenting this concept. Go back to where you came from and condense this concept into your language. Can you do that for me? Not for me, for, for, for the world, but can you take this very abstract, lofty spiritual idea and translate it into a way that's authentic to you and go back to your place and convey it over there? Do I have three people who agree to do it? Who will agree to do it? One person? Two people? Three people? We can change Four people? Okay, we, we can change the world just with that. And the four people who agree to do it now, you convince the rest of the group to... Okay. <laughs>